my name's Justin Clure, and here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about a filmmaker that we've mentioned a lot through this podcast, and that's Hong Kong auteur Herman Yao. Interesting, you should say that, Justin auteur. You know, regular listeners will know that Justin and I have a shared love of Hong Kong cinema, specifically that great period from the '70s to the '90s. That great flowering of energy and creativity that brought us John Woo, Wong Kar Wai, Stanley Kwan, Jackie Chan, Choi Hark, and of course, an auteur named Wong Jing. Well, Wong Jing, but also Herman Yao, a man who has made over 70 movies. But as we discussed at the end of the last episode, we weren't sure where we stood with him because Herman Yao He hasn't really made consistently anyone's favorite films. Me and you, we've gone and seen new Herman Yao films in the theater, only to leave with our heads held low, disappointed. Well, he's made so many movies. They run the gamut from comedies to dramas to thrillers, horror films, gangster movies, family films, erotica. They're all over the place in terms of style and also, I would say, quality. I would say that... One of the things that kind of kept me away from him is that he didn't really dabble that often in the tried and true genre of action films. They just don't really seem to interest him. He has made some, but they were never his main focus. I was probably maybe a little more fond towards Herman Yao than you because probably his two best known movies, the ones that have become cult movies around the world, are these two very grimy exploitation films. The Untold Story, and Ebola Syndrome. Those are movies that are still kind of talked about with hushed tones by people who seek out ugly and transgressive films. Uh, A lot of Herman Yao's movies, though, are probably strictly for Hong Kong consumption. Mm -hmm. He's a guy that seems to just want to take whatever's available and just make it as quickly as possible and then move on. He is a craftsman if there ever was one. But I think that's something that separates him from some other Hollywood hacks is that he does have his passions that he follows every now and then. You know, watching these films this week, I kind of realized it was a 10 for them, one for me system. (laughs) When I look and try to find an authorial voice in his films, and remember, I've only seen a fraction of his enormous output, but it does seem that he does have a social consciousness. He seems to be drawn to stories about outsiders and marginalized people. But putting this sort of auteurist reading aside, when I look at his films... He comes across as, if not the best Hong Kong director, the most Hong Kong director, you know? You can see a little bit of Wong Jing in him, you can see a little bit of Choi Hark, a little bit of An Hui, a little bit of Wong Kar Wai. They're all kind of rolled into this guy. And I think it's because he is one of those total filmmakers. He's a guy that writes, he's a guy that produces, he's a guy that is a cinematographer on other people's films. If you look, he's obviously good pals with Choi Hark. Because supposedly anytime Chur Hark would have major problems on a picture, he would get Herman Yao to come in and be the cinematographer on second unit. Supposedly he co-writes and he shoots most of his own films, but he doesn't take credit for them, even though that is something that he's always dabbling in. So you can tell that because he has so many uh, different skills that his films sometimes suffer from that because he's looking at 
it as a job. He's like a chef that works nine to five every day. Sometimes he'll make an amazing meal for friends. Sometimes it'll just be stuff that people order that he can just move on and continue with his life. Yeah, and when I look at his filmography, I see a lot of commerce and a little bit of art. And that, I think, is a good metaphor for just the Hong Kong film industry in total, you know? He's a guy who is working fast and cheap, and uh, a lot of the movies aren't very good. Some of them are great, and many of them, maybe even all of them, have a certain kind of energy. So we need to talk about Ebola Syndrome, which is probably his most famous movie. Yeah, well, we should proceed it just a little bit by addressing The Untold Story, which is his other most famous movie. And I think these two movies are kind of a duology. Ebola Syndrome is, if not an official sequel, certainly a spiritual sequel. They both star Anthony Wong, who's one of the best actors in Hong Kong. The Untold Story was, in fact, the movie that made Anthony Wong a star, even though it is utterly despicable. (laughs) This is a film that when Anthony Wong talks about it, he's like, ugh, why do I have to make these kind of movies? It's so gross. Well, Anthony Wong won a Hong Kong Oscar for The Untold Story, incredibly enough, which is, that would be like George Payne winning an Oscar for The Taming of Rebecca in America. <laughs> I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Hong Kong, is that there the line between, you know, trash and commercial properties, and even art, is incredibly thin and like that the biggest star could appear in the lowliest garbage by subject matter and then still turn around and make a big blockbuster the next month. Both of these movies, The Untold Story and Ebola Syndrome, were produced by Golden Harvest, which was the big studio in Hong Kong. They were both Category 3 films. Category 3 is the Hong Kong equivalent of NC-17. But like it, it it was at least at that time a very thriving genre in Hong Kong. Like there were there were many category three films released all around the year that would have a lot of very heavy violence, a lot of transgressive sex in them. And there was, I guess, a sort of stigma to these movies. You know, there were people who were category three stars, and there were people who started in category three films and would become stars elsewhere, like the actress Shu Ki. But Um, They were produced by the major studios and they played at real movie theaters. I mean, Simon Yam, another famous actor, was a massive Category 3 star and could turn around and make, you know, films with John Woo or anybody else that was on top. The Untold Story was about, I would say, a socially maladjusted cook at a restaurant who ends up butchering a family of 10 people and and <laughs> turning their, their meat into, I guess, hamburger meat. Based on a true story. Uh, yeah, based somewhat on a, on a true story. <laughs> Just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on a true story. And all of this is depicted in in such loving detail. I mean, it is really a movie. I mean, if you see it, you will not be disappointed. Well, it's a film that's very oddly structured because if you would watch the first hour, you'd be like, what's the big deal? And then it lands on the flashback where the entire premise plays out. And it's just blood splattering all over the place. Kids being decapitated. So Ebola Syndrome... This, this was a movie that I think I saw for the first time 10 years ago. I, I mean, I associate this movie so strongly with Suspect Video, the late departed video store in Toronto, because this is exactly the kind of movie that I was always hoping to discover at Suspect Video, you know, just pawing through long forgotten Asian transgressive horror movies, hoping to find a diamond in the rough. And I mean, I mean, this movie, 
Uh, do you want to tell the folks what it's about? Well, Anthony Wong stars as a character very similar to the one in Untold Story, who is a chef in a restaurant in South Africa. And while on safari with one of his friends, he does something that I will not mention on this podcast. And in the process, catches Ebola, which he then continues to spread with everyone that he meets. Like, he... Oh, it's so gross. Like, even before he catches it, he uh, sticks his dick in a piece of meat uh, to masturbate while his boss is having sex next door. And then he just throws it back in the meat and cooks it up and serves it to people. I mean, it's a movie that opens with a woman pissing in Anthony Wong's face. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I mean, before he crushes her head, I believe, with a chair. Oh, yes. I mean, sorry, folks. I, so this is a movie... A great deal of it is absolutely indefensible. It It is sexist. It's uh, appallingly racist at times. Um, I mean, the only defense that you can give for it is that it, it's, it's exactly the movie that you want to see when you seek out something like this movie. These weren't the kind of movies that I liked or even liked to this day because it is so grimy and gross and as a Hong Kong film, what it's doing is it's just giving you those extremes. <laughs> this is a film that ends with uh, Anthony Wong running down the street, spitting on people, screaming, Ebola, Ebola. Yeah, and I mean, uh, as we know, that's the sort of movie experience that I seek out a lot more than you. And I mean, this is one that it, it's got a lot of energy. It's like it, like it's it's a ferocious movie. It's quite funny at times and it's got an amazing performance by anthony wong in it i mean he he so commits it's really difficult to imagine you know an equivalent american actor like robert de niro or somebody like like giving <laughs> this kind of performance in this kind of movie i mean that's not necessarily a recommendation of this movie but people who want to see this movie will will know uh, i mean listening to the commentary track that herman yao and anthony wong did uh, wong is not a fan of this movie saying stuff like why do european people like this kind of stuff and herman yao replies to that with eh you know it's just nice to know that people like my movie somewhere yeah. i mean these are his most popular movies they're the top ranked ones on letterboxd they're the ones that hong kong film fans all around the world know uh in fact i would say that these two and the two it man movies he made are probably the only ones that have really become crossover successes around the, the world. The reason I think is because Herman Yao is such a Hong Kong director. He has never seemingly chased international success or even the attention of North American critics. Like the bulk of his filmography from 1997 to 1999 is six troublesome night movies, which are, are a horror anthology series that I had never even watched because you cannot find anyone who is a fan of these pictures. But they are a Hong Kong staple who speak to the kind of Hong Kong cultural society and are telling those horror stories that would play to audiences that would go see these movies at midnight when they would open in Hong Kong and then disappear probably a week later. Justin, you watched Troublesome Night 3 this week, which is supposed to be the best of this series. How would you define, like, what is, what is Hong Kong horror as distinct from other horror? And how does this movie provide it? Well, I think that Hong Kong horror is in love with the idea of rituals and the kind of extension and screwing up of those. Like the Taoist priest, just kind of like the kind of Christian figure, is a kind of totem that you can use in horror films. But in Hong Kong, 
horror films, there's just so many complicated rules and things you can or can't do and the way it kind of blows up in people's faces. The supernatural elements in these movies are often just accepted by everybody in the film. It is not a big deal. It's just happening to these people. Now, as far as how this is different from other anthology films, I, I mean, it's fine. It's just a bunch of ghosts popping out and going like, this one is not even particularly scary. It's mostly interested in just goofs. There's a whole middle section where three con men are just possessed each one after the other by a ghost who tries to kill them that just plays like an extended Stephen Chow bit. And that's funny. I mean, the third anthology segment in this one is about suicide and people trying to live with the knowledge that their friend is dead. And I mean, that's different than most American horror stories in that sense. And that it is so central to Hong Kong. Like it loves the streets. It loves shooting without permits. It loves going to that giant cemetery you sometimes see in movies. The one that's just oh, yeah. hills that extend on forever. The one from Dangerous Encounter, First Kind. Exactly. And I think that because there's such a locality to these movies, and that they are speaking to such a specific time, that Herman Yao probably never even considered them something that would stand in movie history. He just saw them as like, all right, I'm going to do these. I'm going to do as best as I can. And then I'm going to move on. I mean, Troublesome Night is like an hour and 38 minutes. That is way too long. And that is an indication that someone rushed through the picture as quickly as possible and then didn't think twice about it. I, I want to skip ahead to later in Herman Yao's career to talk about two movies that North American audiences might be more familiar with because they rode on the coattails of Donnie Yen's Ip Man series. For those who don't know, the Ip Man series and also Wong Kar Wai's film The Grandmaster were both based on this real-life martial arts expert who was who was famous for having been Bruce Lee's teacher. And the Donnie Yen Ip Man movies and Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster initiated this whole cycle of Ip Man movies because Ip Man is a historic figure. He's in the public domain. Anybody can make a movie about him. And so along came Herman Yao, who made two films, uh, one of which, the first of which is The Legend is Born, It Man, from uh, the year 2010, which is an origin story. What's great about this movie is it takes all the elements from the previous Ip Man movies and just does its own thing with it. So you got Sam Hong, who was an Ip Man number two. But then you also have Yung Bao who comes along with them. Mm, great. Get to see them fight together. You also have uh, the star of this film was in the first Ip Man as well. Yeah, so this one shows Ip Man as a young man. Yun Biao, who, of course, Yun Biao is so famous for his appearances in all those Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung movies. Yun Biao is Ip Man's master. Ip Man goes out into the world. He beats up some uh, smug colonialists. Oh, love it. He also gets trained by another old master who expands his understanding of Wing Chun. And, and I mean, basically, he becomes Bruce Lee, right? You know, combining styles. And, and he gets trained by a Sam Seed-like figure that me and Will were like, who is this? This obviously is either an old Hong Kong star or somebody, and it's actually Ip Man's real son. Yeah, yeah, I was very excited to see that. And by the way, I think this movie has a great cast. Anybody who loves Hong Kong film will be happy to know that, as you said, Yoon Biao and Sammo Hung fight in this movie. You've also got Louis Fan, who plays Ip Man's adoptive brother. 
Uh, Louis Fan was the star of Story of Ricky, Ricky O. Lam Suet from all the Johnny Toe movies, he's in there. Just great fight scenes, too. Well, I think that what's great about this movie is it's probably the one that is the most focused on the art of Wing Chun. Like, the fights in this, the actors actually don't move that much. It's about the complicated hand movements that they're doing, because Wing Chun is a very close style that you're not supposed to move too much because you're using, I think it's as little energy as possible to get through the combat. And it was choreographed by Tony Long Siu-hung, who choreographed, I think, the first Ip Man movie, and is also famous for directing uh, Important Cinema Club favorite, Super Fights. And also, this is why that opening fight scene with Sammo Hung and Yoon Biao is so good, because, as we know, Sammo can't move anymore. He's too big and he's too old, but he can still move his hands, so it's a great fight scene. If you watch these fights, there's almost no stunt doubling with any of the actors, which seems almost a conscious decision while they were making the movie. I mean, this is just like a fun, fast homage to Kung Fu film. Herman Yao's next Ip Man film takes us to the other end of Ip Man's life. It's called Ip Man The Final Fight from 2013. And the tone of this one is much different than the previous one. The previous one is basically a fun kung fu movie. This one is a little bit closer in tone to Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster. It's elegiac, it's melancholy, it's much slower paced, and it shows us an older, sadder Ip Man. I think that Herman Yao, his focus has always been on mood and character, and I think that it rears its head here in Ip Man The Final Fight, and that there is no real plot going on. There's conflict, there's a big final action scene at the end, but he's more interested in Hong Kong and just kind of capturing it in these backlots and seeing it evolve. There's a scene in Ip Man, uh, The Legend Begins, where they go see Nosferatu at the movie cinema. And you almost feel Herman Yao just loving this moment that everybody has little guides. There's a poster on the wall. People are actually frightened by what they're seeing on screen. And you get that in Ip Man, The Final Fight as well, that things are changing. And Ip Man, as a figure, he's not really going towards anything. He's just living through these times yeah oh by the way great set in this movie huh it's a it's a big set movie and it's also a movie that you can see anthony wong actually fighting which is something i have never seen him do other than in this film yeah my my complaint about the movie is it's sort of neither fish nor fowl it doesn't fully commit i mean it, it seems conflicted between two approaches it can be the grandmaster or it can be donnie yen's it man and it's sort of uncomfortably between those two. It's constantly undercutting its own action scenes. Like right when an action scene breaks out, you're like, oh, yeah. And then it'll cut away almost as if it's like, eh, you know how this goes. We don't need to show you this. Like it might have been nice if it were just a little bit more of a mood piece. It were just a, it were a little bit more of just kind of hanging out with old it man. And it didn't hit all of those commercial beats that it has to hit. I agree with you. But I still think that you can see Herman Yao's passion for things come out in this movie. Uh, we didn't really talk about Herman Yao as a person. And what's fascinating about him is that if you look at his history, he's done a lot of interesting stuff, whether it be forming a bunch of film magazines when he was young, that he worked as a music video director, which is how he got in with people like Andy Lau, who he's made a bunch of movies with. And then he's also very pro-democracy and pro-union. And a lot of his movies have those elements in them, including It Man the Final Fight, which the first act deals with a pretty violent labor disputes between some of his students and the uh, job that they work this for. This theme also occurs in his 2007 film, Whispers and Moans, which is one of his... I guess, infrequent art movies 
or one of his one for me movies. Yeah, Passion Projects, I would say. Whispers and Moan is not a film that you make thinking that you're going to hit a commercial success with it. It's something that he makes because he feels it needs to be done. And, you know, probably no one else but Herman Yao could pull something like this off at this scale. It's a fairly serious drama about sex workers in Hong Kong. It's based on interviews conducted with actual sex workers by Yishan Yang, who is the screenwriter. And it's sort of a Hong Kong equivalent of Lizzie Borden's Working Girls. There are several interlocking stories of prostitutes at various levels of the economic ladder. A lot of the sort of the locus of a lot of the action is this hostess club that's on the verge of closing. Uh, There's also a transgender street prostitute who we meet. There's a call girl who is concerned about having had gonorrhea and maybe uh, infecting her child. And there are these rumblings of change that are occurring in this movie. So we're seeing all of these sex workers who are coming in from mainland China and who are working at much less the market rate. And tying the plot together is the character of a social worker who's trying to get them to unionize with somewhat limited success. This is the kind of movie that while watching it, I was kind of taken aback and also on the edge of my seat going, going, uh-oh, is this going to go in the wrong direction? Like when you have a, a transgender main character, I'm like, oh, are they going to be portrayed as a villain of some kind? Or is there going to be like some comedy at their expense? Uh-oh, they're talking about AIDS. And whew, if there's anything that is treated politically incorrectly in Hong Kong. It's the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, oh man. And no, this is actually treated very respectfully. You actually get a romance between the transgender worker and a gigolo who is known for kind of uh, verbally abusing women because he has no other outlet. And his realization that, oh, you know, maybe what I'm looking for is actually a relationship that I find constructive beyond my work. It's an interesting movie. It's obviously quite low budget, but it, you know, it's set over 10 days and it has this pretty big scale considering all the characters involved and all the locations involved. It looks nice, although it also looks it it looks like a movie that was shot quickly on a low budget. So there's a lot of stuff that unfolds in long master shots because it's more efficient to do it that way, but it has a certain a certain energy to it. Like the movie has a bit of a like first draft quality to it that's kind of pleasing. Well, it's probably a movie that he made very quickly. <laughs> And got out on the market. I was surprised, though, that the year after this, he was able to make another movie in that same milieu. That one is called True Women for Sale. It kind of feels like an appendix to Whispers and Moans because it has that, you know, um, tapestry of characters, but just a lot less of them. In this one, it's a prostitute that raises chickens and she wants to get her teeth fixed. You have Anthony Wong as a guy who's an insurance salesman who's trying to sell insurance to a woman that's about to give birth who lives beside the prostitutes. It has sex work as kind of a background, But instead of focusing on it, it's mostly interested in how these people that are struggling through poverty can get through the world in Hong Kong. And what it comes to is that like, oh, hopefully in some way the government structures, if it's a good day, can help them in some way. It's a film that its big climax is that someone gets government housing and that's seen as a massive victory. And the only way they can get that is by becoming a news story. I saw looking through his filmography that... 
last year, Herman Yao made a comedy about the Hong Kong housing crisis called A Home with a View. So he seems very engaged in, you know, social issues. I mean, this is a guy that got his PhD, and we should be calling him Dr. Herman Yao, in 2014. And his thesis, which you can find online, is about censorship in Chinese movies. And you also found his old blog. I think you had to look at the Wayback Machine or something for it, which has his ramblings about, you know, relevant issues. It's it's quite interesting. It's too bad the critical press isn't still around to compile it into a book and publish it. Yeah, the only two people who would buy it are probably me and you, Will. Yeah, but I would love to have it between covers on my shelf. I think the real question is, where does Herman Yao go from here? Because it seems like the industry that he worked and th- thrived in is essentially dead in the last six months. Now, he was making big blockbusters. Uh, he directed Shockwave, which was a big Andy Lau action thriller. He is also credited as having made The New King of Comedy, the Stephen Chow film. But I've seen that argued that it's only a Stephen Chow film as opposed to Stephen Chow and Herman Yeah, I mean, he seems to make movies that get play in mainland China. His career has been interesting because he always seems to be reacting to whatever the trends and the, the changes in fortune of the Hong Kong film industry are. So... You know, I I assume he will keep directing. He seems to still make three movies a year. And, you know, as goes the Hong Kong film industry, so will he. (laughs) Yep. And hopefully people can stumble upon this podcast and start, like, watching his movies. Who knows if there's other gems in there that we just haven't heard about. I'd like to actually pose this question to the audience. If there's anybody listening to this who is better versed in the Herman Yao filmography than us, uh, please uh, write in and let us know your recommendations. And don't say uh, Taxi Hunter because I've already seen that one. Wait, I forgot to mention that one of his most notable films, which I don't believe you watched, but I did, From the Queen to the Chief Executive in 2001 was actually listed in Grady Hendrix's, who is one of the top white guys talking about Hong Kong cinema out there as one of the like films of the century of Hong Kong. And it's a picture that's about what happens to teenagers who committed horrible crimes and were never tried, but put at Her Majesty's convenience in jail. And some of them have been there for decades without any trial. And the whole movie's about... How do you get them out of the system before mainland China takes over in 1997? So it's like a hard film, but it's a dramatic film. And it's definitely one of those Herman Yao passion projects. So while we're on the subject, though, Herman Yao, if you're listening to this, give us a call. We would love to interview you on this podcast. <laughs> yes, please. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? We're talking about everyone's favorite funny man, Chris Farley. That's right. We both watched his uh, Chef Douvre Tommy Boy. I had never seen it in its entirety before, but of course I had seen it in its entirety because I've seen parts of it on TV many times. But now I watched it from beginning to end. And so we talk about Chris Farley, what was, what could have been. It's $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So our first letter this week is from Brendan White, and it goes, After listening to the new episode bemoaning the lack of listener questions, here is a moderately personal question for Will. 
concerning his scholarly interest in erotic cinema. Basically, I was just curious about the degree to which you cordon off this interest from your personal life. I assume you avoid bringing up this interest in mixed company, but has a romantic partner or friend ever blanched at the disclosure of your interests or swooned over the fact that you visited Al Goldstein in the hospital? Do you just pop on inside Marilyn Chambers, same as you would pop on a Jess Franco, well, I don't know about that, or Three Stooges movie? Or do you think, my girlfriend has gone for a couple hours, now maybe's a good time to look into Cheryl's surrender? I don't surround myself with people who would be prudish about that sort of thing. Was there ever a breaking point where you were like, I'm just going to talk about this? Or was it always something that, because it interests you, you felt you could, you know, discuss it in academic terms as opposed to like this is a five on the peter meter no i mean very much very much the latter i mean the thing is we are of a generation that has grown up inundated by pornography so i don't i don't particularly on a regular basis encounter people who are very prudish about that sort of thing uh, on any level let alone prudish about it on an academic level i think um erotic film is something i'm interested in like I'm interested in a lot of other kinds of film, you know, we have very broad interests on this podcast that encompass that. Um, so no, I I haven't, uh, it has not affected any personal relationships uh, negatively. <laughs> that you know oh, well, of. Not that, I, not that I know of. <laughs> but have you ever like had a friend or something like that, that has seen something that you've then been embarrassed that you've shown them, whether you thought they would like it or something like that? I have never organized a Sean Costello movie night. You know, I, I know not to do that. <laughs> that, that. I don't think that's the kind of thing that you... Uh, that you watch with a broad-minded group of friends, even. But I mean, I think we've all had the experience of showing a movie to somebody who didn't I like it. I remember a friend telling me that he had a big party and he put on I Spit on Your Grave, having never seen it before. <laughs> oh, well, I do remember one time when I was when I was much younger, my aunt and I went to see Apocalypto, not knowing enough about it. And I think... I assume that probably to this day that she still hates me for that. <laughs> See, the thing with me is that when I would show all this stuff to my friends, I was so delighted. I could not even uh, notice their disinterest or disgust in whatever I was Well, I do them. remember as a teenager showing Fantasy Mission Force to some friends and them meeting it with polite indifference. <laughs> and you do not speak to those people anymore. <laughs> so our next question is from John Paul McKenna. And he goes, hey, guys. Hope this email finds you well in these strange times. A few weeks ago, I excitedly queued up a bunch of movies that I've been meaning to watch for ages. After the extremely good but profoundly grim one-two punch of Dragged Across Concrete and Bullet in the Head, I said, screw it, and sought comfort in the movies of Jean-Claude Van Damme. This led me to rediscover the movies of Peter Hyams, no one's favorite director. Well, we'll get there. But a steady hand who made the type of big budget entertainment that was in vogue when I was at an impressionable age. Watching stuff like Time Cops, Sudden Deaths, and The Relic hit the sweet spot between indulging in nostalgia while still enjoying the work of a competent filmmaker. My question for Tuo Tourist, who is your favorite workman-like director? Thanks, John. Well... I mean, I love Peter Hyams, and he is a guy that he would definitely argue that he is an auteur because he was a screenwriter, he was a producer, he was a cinematographer, he did it all, and he worked his way up through the system, and, you know, he ended up making commercial entertainment, but I do think he has a style and a point of view, which uh, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger would say, not enough lights. 
do you remember reading that interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about End of Days, where he's like, this is not how James Cameron would shoot it, and Peter Himes getting really angry at him? I remember renting the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Enemies Closer, which Peter Himes directed. It's a late period one, a direct-to-video movie, and... Yeah, I remember watching it, you know, not expecting a whole lot and thinking, hey, this is this is kind of good. It's it's entertaining. And it, visually, there's there's a lot of a lot of interest here and saying, oh, yeah, it's it's God Hyams. There is a steady hand at, at the wheel here. See, The thing is that there's a big difference between a steady hand and someone who's bringing a passion to the films. You know where steady hands are in television. There's tons of steady hands that are anonymous and they're just doing what needs to be done in TV. But Peter Himes, like, I remember when we both went to go see Sun Death at the TIFF Lifebox and the person doing the intro was yucking it up, being like, can't believe we're showing this movie. <laughs> what a joke. But you know, like any, when you're working in genre like that, you just don't get that respect. I mean, Peter Himes started writing and directing and i don't think he shot it his first movie was like a grimy new york cop movie starring elliot gould called bustin that is really good if you haven't seen it uh in terms of who are kind of workman like anonymous directors who i like i have an interest in in certain of those guys in the studio era and even in the silent era who just directed a lot of comedies one who comes to mind is Edward F. Klein. He co-directed most of Buster Keaton's short films. He also directed uh, The Bank Dick with W.C. Fields, um, Million Dollar Legs, a lot of Wheeler and Woolsey movies, many films with the great comedians of the time. And, you know, nobody would call him an auteur. And there, there's a widely varied filmography there. But I would be interested in learning a little bit more about Edward F. Klein. What was the craft involved? Because the the results speak for themselves. There are a lot of classics in the Edward F. Klein filmography, so he was clearly bringing something to it, even if it was just getting out of the comedian's way. I mean, I love journeyman directors who essentially take on any job that comes their way, but consistently deliver entertaining product. Well, I say consistent. They can fail, but like someone like uh, Sidney Lumet would be considered a journeyman director, and he... At the same time, he's also one of the, like, big guys. You know, people that are probably not as well considered. Someone like John Badham, uh, who directed Saturday Night Fever, but also did, like, Stakeout, Another Stakeout, Nick of Time. He just essentially directed whatever came across his desk. He he tried to write a, like, uh, this is how you direct book in the mold of Sidney Lumet, and it did not take off. And he's currently a TV episodic director. You also have probably the king of journeyman, uh, John Frankenheimer. We, I think we both read that great book about Sidney J. Fury that came out a few years ago. I mean, Sidney J. Fury is nowhere near my favorite director. I think he's made a lot of clinkers. It was this book about him. It's the book about him. <laughs> and it draws on a lot of interviews that he did with the author. And like Sidney J. Fury... His late career is a lot of direct-to-video movies like My Five Wives with Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, he made, he directed Lady Sings the Blues. He directed uh, The Icarus File. A lot of like pretty big movies. But he ended his career do, and is, is still working in straight-to-VOD, straight-to-DVD stuff. And somebody asked him, well, why did... You know, why did you make uh, My Five Wives or whatever it was? And he said, are you kidding? I love making movies. You know, being at the craft table, talking to the crew. There's, no, there's nothing better than that. I once worked as a guy 
who um, crewed on a bunch of Sidney J. Fury films, and he said he was like Woody Allen, and he'd be like, ah, you know, uh, we know this is not good, and we just want to make our day, so let's just do it and get out of here. Justin, you and I both earlier this year before the pandemic went to see a Sidney J. Fury movie at one of the theaters here in town, and uh, it was, in fact, it was Sidney J. Fury's first movie, A Cool Sound from Hell, and there was a Skype Q&A with him afterwards where he was in the editing suite working on his new movie. He said, oh, yeah, you know, we had a we had a five day schedule, uh, you know, still still working. And I found something very touching about I that. I remember seeing an interview with him at TIFF after a screening and he was like, yeah, I submitted my movie to TIFF this year. I knew it wasn't going to get in. It wasn't good enough, but there's always the next one. I mean, the journeyman directors are the people that I love to do episodes on because it's always like, what? Who are they and what can they deliver? Like John Frankenheimer, I think, would make a great subject because he's done so much stuff. Or someone like Richard Fleischer, who was another like king of the studio journeyman director. What? Somebody got fired? I'll take their job. I mean, I think Richard Fleischer... Did he take over for Sidney J. Fury on the Jazz Singer remake? Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, after Sidney J. Fury got fired, he took over <laughs> the Neil Diamond one. There are also a lot of directors who we love who sort of became auteurs who were journeymen. Like a lot of the exploitation directors, like Lucio Fulci is somebody who spent the whole first half of his career directing, you know, Italian comedies that nobody on this continent knows about. Or, you know, John Woo spent 15 years making, you know, just taking whatever assignment until he kind of locked into the and, thing. And, you know, that that's what I love. Well. You know, people just going into work nine to five doing their thing. <laughs> so next week, we're going to take an entire country cinematic output that me and will know almost nothing about explore it and try to share what we took away from it in this case it's the cinema of brazil which i don't know does anything pop in your mind when you say when i say that well uh city of god that's pretty much it right <laughs> but there was the cinema novo movement that happened in the 1960s and 1970s and before that they had like a golden age of cinema during the silent era they had whole genres that they had that were just brazilian specific so i think it's going to be something that'll be interesting to explore and no pressure we cannot cover everything but as newcomers just exploring something that we can then share with people that hopefully will go and explore it themselves and then we will pass our judgment on is this a, a worthy country <laughs> not with their current government Ayo. so until then my name is Justin Clue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening Hey everyone, this is Justin, interrupting for a second to thank our new Patreon subscribers, which include Kevin Johnston and Alexander Lee. Thank you so much for becoming members, we could not do it without you. If you're listening to this and you haven't checked out our Patreon, which has hundreds of exclusive episodes, it's $5 a month, and you can subscribe by going to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. And on good news, Gold Ninja Video has reopened. It was put on hold for a while, but now you can go to goldninjavideo.com and buy any of the still-in-print Blu-rays that I've put together and that Will's participated in as well. So we have stuff like The Three Stooges, Kung Fu Zombie, Thundering Mantis. They're all up and available for purchase, as well as a new release mango shake which we'll talk a little bit about next week but i can say now that it's a film that has never been released anywhere it was made two years ago and i worked with the director in putting together an amazing special edition with commentary tracks an extended version of the movie liner notes the soundtrack on compact portable disc and it's available only at goldninjavideo.com order your copy now and it'll ship asap
And as per usual, if you haven't reviewed us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, please do so. It is very much appreciated. So now, back to the show. So, Will, I was looking at your letterbox, and it seemed that you had a, uh, a ironic watch that you put on, and it actually moved you in some way. I wouldn't say it was ironic. I would say that, that I, I certainly wanted to like it, but my, my girlfriend had started watching Ratatouille uh, on an airplane and wanted to finish it up. And I hadn't seen Ratatouille since uh, it came out, in fact. That, that's the lovable Pixar movie about the rat who can cook. You know, we were watching it and something that we were talking about was, oh, you know, the, like some people love this movie. And, you know, it's it's a it's a movie. It's a movie for children. It's a, it's a kid's movie. Like what's with these people who these grown adults who are so into Pixar, so obsessed with Pixar. So that's what, you know, we were saying, you know, you know, likable enough movie. But then the scene at the end where Anton Ego, the critic, comes to the restaurant and he eats the ratatouille and there's the flashback. He gets struck by that memory of himself as a child scraping his knee and there's his mother f- to feed him a plate of ratatouille. I-, I gotta say, I actually, I teared up. <laughs> when I read your review, it just made me think, why do you think, and a lot of people come with these like notions of this is, I hear this, ter- I've seen this term a lot lately, baby movies. Is that something they said on the Chapo Trap I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but it definitely sounds like something they would say on that podcast. And what I'm going to say to that, though, is that it feels like in our discourse, there have been so many articles, there have been so many think pieces that are all about um, actually, it's it's good and populist and and morally right to love these big franchise movies that are that are based on properties for children and sold to children. And it's actually elitist to like these obscure, arty earth movies. And and all of all of these articles seem designed to basically prop up an industry and a company like Disney that's doing what it can to steamroll all other but, culture. I mean, I would argue that those articles are dumb and written by bad people. <laughs> I, I, Hey, you know what? You and I agree on that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm such an omnivore when it comes to this kind of stuff that, you know, in this time of the internet, you have to pick a side. And a lot of people have decided to go on the populist, anti-elitist, you know, Marvel movies are good kind of stuff. And it's like, oh my God, why does this have to be your entire identity? You're ruining it for people like Will. I wish everyone, including myself, was as omnivorous as you are. You have the most omnivorous taste of anyone I know. Picks are such like an impossible to criticize thing because they are a evil juggernaut run by the most terrible corporation in the world. Well, you know, it actually felt so much different when I was younger. Even, even 15 years ago, it felt like... Like, you know, you and I both like, say, the Looney Tunes cartoons or, or you know, we, we like a lot of culture that is for children. Um, and, and, you know, particularly 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would, you would have to say, no, actually, there's stuff in here for adults. And it felt like, you know, swimming against the tide of culture. You know what Thanks I mean? Thanks to stuff like the Internet, it encourages people to have an arrested development that the thing that they liked as kids, now that they're adults, they still cling on to it. It's not people going, oh, this thing I have had value. It's more like, no, this is the best and it has always been the best. And that's the thing that you want to push against. There's an appetite to both write and read articles that are encouraging you to limit your horizons because going outside of those horizons, you know, you can you can justify saying that going outside of those horizons is elitist in some way. <laughs> that's insane. I, I mean... You look at what Disney's doing and they're just pumping out remake garbage and you're like, what? 
<laughs> there is has to be a wall, a pandemic like wall that they have to hit at some point where this is not sustainable. But who knows? Like it was announced that there's new Star Wars stuff. And I'm like, no more Star Wars stuff, please. I've had enough. By the way, Pixar isn't very good anymore ever since they got officially bought by Disney. They used to be a technically independent company that would be distributed through Disney, but now Disney owns them. And ever since that happened, there have been no more movies like Ratatouille. There have been a lot of sequels and there have been a lot of movies that are of varying quality, of course. Obviously, there have been some good ones and there have been some lesser ones. It's it's not that that artistic company that everybody was talking about a decade ago. Do you think that when the world boots back up in, I don't know, six to 12 months, maybe longer, that the companies who have been kind of hammered by the money that they've lost are going to rethink the way they release films? This is a hypothetical question because I know what's going to happen. They're just going to try to like quadruple the successes of movies coming out instead of doing the smart thing and making little films and trying to make those hits. I actually really wonder what's going to happen now because... I mean, we've seen that all of the big blockbusters are being delayed six months, a year, however long. But then uh, just today, it was announced that the new Judd Apatow movie, the one about Pete Davidson, is going to be it's going to go straight to VOD. And hey, listen, you laugh. I laugh. Neither of us wants to see a Pete Davidson movie. But that's the kind of movie that as recently as five years ago would have would have just been a guaranteed like even five years ago that movie going straight to vod would have been unthinkable i am curious genuinely if if this goes on longer if it becomes sort of a breaking point if these if studio comedies don't go into theaters anymore after this i don't know but people always want to go to the cinema and laugh though i think like people standing there not having decided what they wanted to see like seemingly 85 percent of the population they may not want to go see a superhero movie. They'll be like, eh, I just want something that's like a comedy. Look, Baywatch 4, The Rock's Revenge. That sounds like fun. That's true, but there, it's been a while since a straight comedy has made over $100 million. Yeah, uh, what was the last one? I wonder if you went through box office. It might have been Girls Trip, honestly. Oh, yeah, Can you think that's of one right. since Girls Trip? Oh. And that was like three years ago. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, things are definitely going to change and they're going to have to figure out you know, how Disney's going to buy them up and then they'll own everything, Disney theaters. <laughs> and that's the world that we're going to live in. Can't wait. Ratatouille's bad, Will. 